We're coming to the end of season four, and we like to reach out to fans of the podcast to ask about uh, what your favorite moments are from season four. That's right. If you have a favorite moment, a favorite episode, really a favorite anything that you liked from season four, please send us an email at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. You can also send us a voice recording that we'll try to play in our season four retrospective episode. You know, at the end of every season, we like to go back and look at all the episodes and talk about, you know, where we've come, how we've gotten this far uh, now in season four. So uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on what your favorite moments were so we can sort of uh, play them back in our retrospective. The first 10 people who write to us or send us a voice recording will receive a postcard from us for free. So record your thoughts or write in. And once again, thank you for listening. Utakalakatuvik. She doesn't look quite right. Come again? Utakalakatuvik. Vicky for short. Utakalaka what? It's the tree. Oh, Vicky. You're saying that, that this tree has a name, is that it? And its name is Vicky? Yep, and she just doesn't look quite right. What was that? Well, look at that knot right there that's oozing goo. And the branches, too. They look kind of tired. And look right here at the leaves. They shouldn't be all dried and cracked and crunchy around the edges like that. Yeah, right, because it's springtime. Exactly. I think she's really, really sick, Dr. Fleischman. Well, calm down, Ed. Her name might be Vicky, but it's a, this is a tree, you know? Dr. Fleischman, this is old Vicky. She's been around forever. We start this episode with a very foreboding scene. The old tree is finally dying, perhaps? Charles, have you ever... Did you ever grow attached to a tree in your childhood, or have you ever seen a tree taken down? Uh, a little bit. Like, we just had Hurricane Laura go through the town, mm -hmm. and that ripped up my entire backyard. Like, Oof. it was full of vegetation. It had bushes and small trees and flowers. Completely gone. All of that is gone. We had to restart from the ground up, literally. We had to, like, tear up the ground, take off all the roots from those old trees and plants and bushes. So, in a way, I guess that, like, that that's more than just one tree. Yeah. I guess I was sentimental to the entire backyard. The front yard was also ripped up a little bit as well, but not nearly as much as a um, drastic change as the backyard. What about you? Did you ever have a tree you were sentimental about? Sure, yeah. In our backyard, we had a tall tree, a pine tree, that at, at one point in our childhood, my dad built us a tree house. So obviously very attached to this tree because we would spend our time in the backyard a lot and in this tree house. And eventually, like, you know, the, the tree house, we either started getting too old, too big, or it just got so old that, you know, it's no longer safe. You know, if you're not just uh, keeping like an, an upkeep on that tree house, it could become dangerous and start falling apart. So it was taken down. And I feel like um, the tree still stood for a few years after that, but uh, because of course, where we live, Charles, we go through hurricane season, you know, every year, uh, it just became more and more, well, dangerous, I guess, to keep the tree up if, if it were to, you know, fall over on the house. So, um, now I can't remember if my dad did it himself or hired some people to come chop the tree down, but yeah, now if you look in the backyard and 
at my childhood home. It's, uh, I don't really think there's any, there's maybe one tree left and uh, 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 my dad has turned into a garden, which is nice. Uh, that, that's sort of like a, some, some, some rebirth, some new life. But, um, but yeah, man, it sounds like you had to go and uproot everything in your yard. And now uh, is it just completely barren? Oh, no, 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 no. We replaced it. Uh, mm, it's actually oh. full of life now. Like, wow. We have to restructure the entire thing. But uh, no, it, it just looks like a completely different backyard. Like if you went mm. like uh, before and after, if you compared from like what it was before the hurricane and what it looks like now, you would think of it as like, two different homes. But yeah, no, we got it back up and running. So again, going with the theme of rebirth right here. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this episode may start uh, in a very dark place, but hopefully we'll see by the end uh, some sort of uh, renewal. But Charles, maybe we should... um up top here, let's let's just let's explain what we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. So we're here at the season finale of Northern Exposure season four. Woo! Woo! We did it. Finally, <laughs> finally got to it. This, uh, is, this the, is the longest. The longest. Yeah. This is the longest season oh, by like one man. episode or two, but but still, still pretty long season right here. Uh, so we're the Northern Overexposure podcast, and we overanalyze Northern Exposure right here. My name is Charles, and I'm always joined here with my co-host, Lee. Thanks. My name is Lee. I'm a big fan of the show. I've seen it a few times, I'd say, especially like these early seasons. But it was really nice to get through season four again, because uh, I want to say four and five are probably the ones that I've, you know, maybe only seen, I think, two times. And then I I really want to say season six. That's, I've only seen that once. But Charles... Uh, Every episode that we watch would be your first time watching it. This is sort of a new show to you. Obviously, season four being over now, you've seen more than half of the the entire series, and you have a pretty good grasp on what's going to happen. But uh, this is a pretty wild episode. There's a lot that happens here that we're going to get into. So, you know, Northern Exposure is always uh, full of surprises. Why don't you hit us with uh, some of the detail? He was the director. He was the writer. Yeah. So the director, Michael Fresco, he directed uh, just, I think, two episodes before this, Dateline Sicily, which was in the third season, and Thanksgiving in this season. Those are both, I think, pretty great episodes. And uh, this episode now, as we said, the the finale of season four, it's the 25th episode of season four, and it's called Old Tree. It was written by Diane Frolov and Robin Green, which is an interesting pairing. You know, we often see... Diane Frolov paired with Andrew Schneider as a writing uh, duo, and Robin Green paired with Mitchell Burgess as a writing duo. Now we get this interesting combination where normally, I don't know if, I don't think they've written an episode together, though of course uh, these two have written numerous episodes of Northern Exposure, and and uh, those names, always when they pop up, I'm usually excited because I, I tend to enjoy their episodes. Yeah, I wonder if it was a case of one had written the original script and then the other one popped in to kind of like pepper it in, kind of like fill in the holes, and then they just both got writing credits. Like what I'm trying to say is like, I don't know if it was a collaborative process or if one simply started the base and then the other one just finished up the model. Right, and we talked about this before, like in screenwriting credits, when you use the word and or you use the ampersand, like the and sign, it means two different things. Like it could denote it was a a team of writers working together or that it was multiple writers sort of like adding to existing material and, and kind of on top of each other. Let's see. 
A-N-D, the word and, means that they wrote separately. Ampersand uh, designates a writing team. So it would seem to be that they worked on this together. Um, but I, I think you have also an interesting point, Charles. There were times in this episode that somehow reminded me of uh, like season one, Northern Exposure. Maybe it's just always had this flavor and it's uh, crops up here and there. But I think specifically it came to me when um, Joel uh, is, is um, interacting with Maurice. Like Maurice can be very bossy to Joel and Joel just accepts it, which is, I mean, that's true at any point in Northern Exposure, I guess. But specifically in the, or especially in the first season when Joel is frightened of Maurice, who's like, he thinks he's going to shoot him with like his hunting rifle or something. Yeah. Well, I would also say that this episode had what I felt was uh, a recycled plot line between Joel and Maggie. Like when I was watching, I was like, have I seen this episode? And then I was like, have I seen this episode twice? Like, hang on now. Yeah, it's, well, for that, I would say their plot line has to do with, um, it's like constantly bickering at each other. Like you're too mean to me, too nice. Uh, I feel like Maggie, a lot in this season has been um, coming into this new embodiment of being a nice person. And this happens again in this episode. Uh, but it does retread on some uh, some older plot lines. I guess we can kind of uh, kind of point those out as we go through that plot line. I guess there's three. It's usually you know it's typical to have three plot lines in an episode. Sometimes there's more, but I would say for this episode, we've got the old tree, Utakalakatuvik or old Vicky, as they say in the opening soundbite that we played. There's of course Joel and Maggie. And then there's something strange happening with Shelly. Uh, so I guess we should just dive in, Charles, but I'll let you choose. What, where do you want to go down? Which plot line? Hmm. Well, I think we should at least dive into the intro scene and then we'll okay. branch off from there. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we don't, have to, we don't have to split up yet. Let's just uh, let's set it up as it uh, comes to us through the television. <laughs> yeah, so the introductory scene is Joe and Ed walking past Old Vicky. And we get this great, great shot of old Vicky in the center of the screen while Joe and Ed look like ants. They look like miniature figures right next to this tree, and they're on the left side of it. I wanted to say that because this is such a great shot, it reminded me that the director of photography, Frank Prinzi? Oh, yeah. Prinzi's back. Frank Prinzi. Frank Prinzi. This is his last episode. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, Sayonara, yeah. Frank Prinzi, he's, uh, as we mentioned before, I used to think that he was just the director of photography for the entire series, but that's obviously not true. He he leaves after this, but um, I feel like we see that name pop up a lot. And uh, look, he got his, he got a shot directing, I think, was, was it last episode he directed? Yeah, it was last episode that he directed. And then this episode was his last final touches. And I got to say, this episode has like a lot of great framing in it. I thought that he did a fantastic job in this. And yeah, that brings us to the introductory scene. Like, the tree is right in the center right there. So your eyes are immediately going to go toward it. And we played the sound clip of it before. But yeah, looks like that old Vicky is not long for the world. Yeah. And Joel seems to, you know, he's, he's not too distressed by it. And maybe he's even trying to uh, to comfort Ed. He's saying, you know, this is just a tree, Ed. It's fine. It's not like a person. But Ed mentions in that soundbite that this is uh, this tree has been around forever. And there's a uh, part of this scene that we didn't play in the soundbite, but Ed mentions that the tree has been there longer than Uncle Anku, 
longer than um, One Who Waits, who's like the ghost that visits Ed from time to time, this very ancient spirit. So this tree uh, is quite old and uh, Joel, I think, just kind of walks away and he's he's doing his whole golf thing. That's what this whole scene is in the beginning and Ed is like the caddy. So Joel goes off on his own and does his own thing while Ed, who should be caddying for Joel, is um, similarly walking in the other direction, like away. And he's still clutching like the leaves, the dying leaves of old Vicky. And he must be in his own thoughts because Joel is like calling after him, uh, but Ed can't hear it. We get some really nice wide shots, obviously, uh, as you described, Charles. But uh, even at the end of this scene, we get this feeling of quietude. You know, there is music towards the beginning of the scene, but by the end here, when we're leaving with these uh, extreme wide shots, we're back to a very quiet, just empty sound. Yeah. One of the neat things throughout this entire scene is that whenever Joel and Ed go underneath the tree, the many branches above them are intertwining with each other and through their faces as well, as if to demonstrate that this tree is now weaving its way through everyone's life. So everyone who stands underneath old Vicky always has these branches above them. They're always in the shot right there. So it literally permeates through the frame as if to be an umbrella for these characters. I think that's a very neat artistic decision. Yeah, and that's a wonderful image. I, I think I can see it. I'm, I'm imagining or remembering it's like, it's like uh, Ed and Joel are looking upwards and the camera might be probably in the tree looking down, right? Through all the limbs. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I do remember that shot. Uh, yeah, you're right. Lots of great photography in this episode. But that's that's that scene, right? We kind of leave it there. And uh, I want to say after that, there's a uh, title theme with the music and the moose. And uh, the next scene would be in the brick. Uh, a package has arrived for Chris. It's like a headset microphone. Um, not exactly wireless because there is there is like a wire connected to it, but I think you'll see, we see it in action later. I think that wire probably plugs into like a, a transmitter, which would make the whole system like wireless, like transmit the signal to a, to a receiver. But the, <laughs> I totally didn't notice at first because I was paying attention to this package that arrived for Chris, uh, but Chris has like a goatee now. <laughs> I'm really not a fan of this this look on Chris. It's I didn't even <laughs> notice at all. That's strange. <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah, it's very odd because we talk about his hairstyle changing uh, kind of drastically. Some episodes he'll have long hair and then it'll be short and then long again and uh, but I've never, I don't know if I've ever seen this goatee on Chris. I wonder if this device is going to stay through on season five. Because what this thing, what this device serves to do is that it allows him to leave the studio. He feels that he's been very enclosed by it, which is uh, kind of a neat theme that runs throughout the episode being caged, being enclosed. So Chris uses dad to venture forth into the world. And I'm hoping they use it throughout season five, and it's not just a prop for this episode. Yeah, that could be pretty interesting. I mean, of course, we love the comfort and the warm neon lights of K-Bear. We just love that feeling of being inside K-Bear with Chris, but it is exciting because uh, as we see later in this episode, he does like go out into the field, which seems a little uh, silly, but it's it's interesting to think about. I don't want to jump ahead to that, but I just, I guess since it's on my mind, um, you know, if you were listening to Chris broadcast out in the field with old Vicky, you know, the tree, it's not the same as like hearing like a, I guess it's 
what I'm trying to say, I guess, is, you know, when a reporter goes out in the field, it's usually to cover some action or something that's happening right now. The tree is always there. Like you can't necessarily hear the tree, but still, if I were tuning into Chris's broadcast from the tree, I think it would, it, it would feel different. Something about it. it. It definitely adds just knowing that uh, Chris is out there with the tree. Sorry, I'm skipping way ahead, but I just thought that was an interesting, um, an interesting uh, distinction. No, 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 no. I think that's. Uh, I think you make a good case. Field reporting right there really puts you in the mood. <laughs> yeah. But what also is going on in this scene is that Maggie is delivering some morning sickness medicine for Shelley due to her incoming pregnancy. But it turns out that she doesn't need it because. She is in a musical mood. She busts into like this uh, fully choreographed uh, original song. Yeah, yeah. That's like a show tune-esque number all throughout the brick. It's really nice. I'm not a fan of the lyrics of it and what they imply, but it's nice that Northern Exposure decided to take a little bit of a risk on this season finale and, you know, got a little bit out of the ordinary. Yeah, we've got Shelley the musical. I think, uh, well, I know for sure that this predates that uh, very famous uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, which was like a, a musical episode. I think it's called Once More with Feeling. Yeah, that's it. And, and that didn't come out till probably like 98 or something. And it got me thinking like, is this one of the first instances of a television show doing sort of like musical numbers? Now, of course, like musicals and uh, variety shows and things like that. But if you take like um, an episodic show that is typically like a sitcom or a situational comedy and add in this musical element for an episode is a very interesting change of pace. And um, I did a very brief search online to see if there's anything. There, there are plenty of uh, musical episodes of TV shows that predated the Buffy uh, episode that we were talking about. But I haven't found anything that came out before this episode which aired in uh, May of 1993. See, the air date was May 24th, 1993. Well, there is one. So there was an old television show in the 1950s called Producers Showcase. It was like an anthology television series that ran on NBC. And they had one episode that was based on Our Town, the Thornton Wilder 1938 play. Mm. It had Frank Sinatra as the stage manager and Paul Newman and Ava Maria Saint as the teenagers who fall in love and get married. So I guess that would be the first musical-esque yeah. number. Yeah, I could see this uh, being maybe more more popular or more common uh, in early television for sure. But yeah, I just think that's so interesting. And again, like this isn't really, it's not like the whole show becomes a musical. It's a very specific to Shelley. It's like localized just to her because, uh, well, I guess we haven't described it yet, but as we heard from Holling, she's fine. She doesn't have any um, morning sickness or problems with the pregnancy. Uh, she's just singing. She doesn't talk. She just sings uh, instead of talking for the whole episode. And as you described, Charles, she breaks out into this uh, original song number. I actually, I can't remember what uh, she's talking about in this song, but I do remember that the cinematography for this scene is, uh, I think primarily like steady cam, just following around her. Shelly's got a lot of different blocking throughout the brick kind of going all around and the camera is pretty continuous and just sort of follows her motions. I I'm a little disappointed that we didn't get to see any like, uh, you know, like in musicals, whenever, someone starts singing and then like a whole group of people get together and they do this like choreographed dance and stuff. Maybe that's more common in 
Bollywood, but you see it in in other musicals too. Yeah, that's like having a large ensemble. Like yeah. You're basically just having the um, the background also be part of the cast right there. I'm actually not a fan of those types of musicals, <laughs> which is like a lot of the musicals, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm not saying I uh, like immediately write off a musical on that, but you, sometimes you can get a much more intimate play if you don't do that, if you just stick with the core members. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, it's just happening to Shelley, so it wouldn't really make sense if the rest of the townsfolk get up and dance. But um, I think, you know, that is uh, that sort of choreography is very exciting to capture. Uh, like that sort of motion is exciting to capture on film. Uh, but I will, I will concede that I think my favorite musical number in this episode is a very quiet one towards the end. But we've got a few to talk about as we continue. Do you want to stick on Shelly's plotline or? Uh, I, I can. There was more I wanted to add on Shelly. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, in the best musicals, songs don't exist only for their entertainment value. They should be used to develop story and mood and theme right there, using the songs. The first musical to do that was Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma, which was the first time they actually could integrate the music and lyrics in a musical to also go along with the stories right there. So, at this junction in the story, I'm really hoping that they utilized Shelley singing for an actual purpose rather than just being a, a gimmick or a quirk that they're having throughout the episode. Yeah, it is a bit flashy at first. Uh, well, I guess we'll, we'll, we should uh, analyze each of these uh, musical numbers that happen. I think I would also agree with you that a lot of the song and dance here seems to be a bit of a, a fluff, perhaps. And again, I don't want to knock them any points because I think this is pretty exciting that this is just happening. Imagine if you're watching Northern Exposure uh, and this, you know, you expect something strange, but this is like maybe like a home run. This is crazy. <laughs> uh, we can go to the next scene with Shelley, which is a little bit further deeper into the episode in which she's being intertwined with the plot line of Maggie and Joel. So Maggie's going to talk to Shelley about her troubles with Joel, saying like, you know, he's such a jerk and, you know, he'd still be a jerk whether he's here or if he's in New York. Like, I don't know why he's complaining. Yeah. And uh, Shelly is responding sort of in like a sing-talky way. It's not really a musical number at the start. She's just sort of like sing-talking. I mean, there is a, like a piano player at the brick in the background, which is interesting. But I'm not even sure Shelly's like in the same key. I think she's just like riffing in some weird, some some way. But a song does start, and she starts to sing a song about a woman who takes care of this snake that was like out freezing in the cold, and she kind of pampers this snake, and in the end, the snake ends up biting the woman. Yeah, uh, basically the moral of the story is to show like, you are who you are, and you can't change it. So this woman takes in the snake thinking that she could change its nature, but no, it's still a snake at the end, and it's still going to bite. So inevitably it does so and kills the woman. So I think what Shelley is trying to tell Maggie in this instance is that Joel is Joel and you are you. And no matter how much you would like to change the nature of Joel or to change the nature of yourself, it is what it is. Right. And I wrote here after this second musical number that so far none of these songs are are bangers or like jams. <laughs> They're uh, and I I'm not I'm probably not as uh well-versed or I'm not as much of a fan of musicals as you are, Charles, but I do enjoy a good musical. Uh, I feel like so far 
I appreciate the novelty here, but I can't say that the songs, the music, the choreography is necessarily very well executed. You know, we just get a lot of uh, cam following Shelly as she moves throughout. Uh, not too many, I guess there's variety in the shot sizes because the camera is like a continuous movement with Steadicam. They do love to do that in musical television shows or movies. They love using the Steadicam shots as just to make the thing very alive, as if you're like in the point of view of the singer, which I can see the appeal. But also when you go see a musical, it's on stage. Yeah. Like it's not like you're journeying through there and going through like a three-dimensional space <laughs> with them. But I, I also get it. It would be like, you know, kind of boring if this framed it exactly like a stage. Right, right. Just like one wide angle shot. Well, I will say I do appreciate wider angles for to see like the full range of motion. Uh, but obviously in film, you gotta you gotta do some editing there. As you said, Charles, you don't just want to see this one big wide frame. But um, I think another reason why they've done Steadicam so much is uh, purely because like this would take a lot of time to shoot if you if you covered it in multiple angles. Uh, Steadicam itself is also a bit of a setup. You have to light the entire set that you're going to move through. Every position that Shelly lands in, she needs to be well lit, you know? So it is a lot of work, but uh, I feel like it's probably because they're on a bit of a time crunch to release these episodes in time for air. So yeah, I feel like it is also just... Uh, you know, we, we can do a musical, but we can't we can't go like too crazy with it or else we're never gonna finish this on time. <laughs> Got it. So we next see this plot line advanced with Holling and Walt trying to build a crib. And I really like this shot because it's using that visual motif again of being framed uh, between objects. In this particular case, they're being framed between bars. So it's almost like it's visualizing frustration or disappointment and entrapment in his life, which is what Holling is feeling right now because... He is not being freed by the music at all. If anything, <laughs> it's the opposite, like these bars that are caging him right here. He feels that Shelly's singing is, one, very annoying, and number two, <laughs> he fears that like it's going to be like this forever. So yeah. the nature of Shelly has now changed from what he had knew her initially before the pregnancy, and now he's worried that like this is a new being this is something in which, like, it's going to be here forever, much like the story of Shelley and the snake. Yeah. And, you know, earlier when you mentioned the idea of, like, being caged in that imagery, uh, it did remind me of this scene where they're building the crib, uh, Walton Halling. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a perfect, perfect metaphor or visual metaphor here. And, um, you know, Walt says, you know, you're, you're really lucky you get to hear this beautiful voice all the time. I think, you know, Shelly's going in to bring them some snacks. Walt says, no, I'm not hungry, but if you take requests, I'd like to hear Tangerine. And she starts singing this song, Tangerine. <laughs> it's really unique, too, because whenever he says that, whenever you're saying, like, I'm actually enjoying the singing, uh, I'm going to put in requests, Walt isn't being framed by the crib, mm. the crib bars anymore. Yeah. The camera has now shifted where Walt is to the left of it, where he's free from the bars and hauling is distinctly still between the bars. Frank Prenzi with that big brain time when he was shooting this episode. It's <laughs> like thinking about it, looking through the lens. Uh, for sure, that is definitely um, intentional. Let's see, hauling says, anyone can get too much of a good thing. As you said, Charles, he's worried that uh, that this might last forever. 
He says he can't have a regular conversation. Any simple comment becomes an opera. I think at first Holling was happy about it. And of course he loves to see Shelley happy, but now he's really torn because geez, if this could last forever, what does that mean? All right, well, we can go on to the next scene in this plot line. It's when Shelley goes to see Joel and Joel is ready to try to diagnose like what might be wrong with Shelley and the, the fact that she's singing. So he wants to take like some throat cultures and things like that, figure out if that's uh, some, something wrong with her throat. Maybe that's causing her to sing. But Shelly, uh, obviously sing-songy, is explaining to him, no, she's just here to do the, the whole like prenatal checkup thing. Uh, let's see. Actually, I've got a little uh, soundbite we can play for this scene. So you're not here because of uh, this singing thing? Hey, I figure it's like hiccups or gas. You know what they say, this too will pass. Well, actually, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure it'll pass, Shelly. I mean, I've, I've never seen or, or heard anything quite like this. I don't like the look on your face. It's bumming me out. I thought I was happy, but now I don't know. You're making me feel like a major weirdo. All right, look, let's not get too worried. How about I'll do the prenatal and then we'll get the throat culture a little later, okay? Yeah, so you get a little sample of Shelly singing right there. I'm skipping ahead a little bit right here, but... I, I, this will be the only scene in which I could talk about it. Uh, throughout this entire episode, they do talk about wood. Um, Chris mm-hmm. muses about the ramifications that wood has had in our lives and how it starts from the beginning and comes in the end. And right when he said that, I couldn't help but notice a lot of wood in the mm. entire episode right here. So in this particular scene, Joel has like those little wooden... Uh, I call them popsicle sticks. Oh, yeah. It's that thing you put onto your tongue. Tongue depressor. Yes. Mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. has a lot of them in the center of the shot right there. And I, I feel like that's really intentional for them to do it right there. Another wood object right there. Mm-hmm. Joel is dressed in a green button-up shirt, which reminds us of the leaves of a tree. And Shelly is in a brown coat, which is like wood. And the little uh, hair braid that she has is just same exact green as Joel's shirt. So it, she kind of resembles a tree right there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely on the minds of the set dressers, the art department, the costume. Uh, we want to we want to like accentuate that theme of of trees, of wood, of earth. Uh, these earthy colors and leaves, the trunk of a tree. It's all around us in this episode. Okay, so anyway, later Joel goes to check up on Shelley. I think he's going into the brick. Only now when he sees her, She simply turns away and walks off. And Joel learns from Holling that Shelley has refused to speak now. Uh, Rather, I guess she refuses to sing. So, you know, I'm I'm guessing Holling mentioned this to Shelley or, you know, we could could sense this. Oh, actually, I guess we forgot. I don't know if we mentioned this, but from that last soundbite when Joel is talking to Shelley about this, you know, the idea that this may never actually end. He doesn't know that for certain. Uh, Shelly does get very bummed out, and I think she continues to sing about that. We can see her whole uh, attitude start to shift, and now here in the brick, we've learned that she stopped, uh, stopped talking, stopped singing. Yeah, uh, it's um, whenever Joel goes to the bar to talk to Shelly, there is a branch on the bar. <laughs> 
It's like this like tree branch. I'm imagining it's coming from old Vicky. Like they right. preserved some part of her, but it's in the shot, like <laughs> directly in the shot of this branch right there. Uh, I might be reading too much into this, but this is the scene after old Vicky is cut down. Yeah. And if you notice, Shelly is no longer wearing her brown coat. Mm. No, yeah, I can see that for sure. Got a market change. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a very market change, yeah. Right. And yeah, going off of what you had said, Shelly leaves disappointed to go attend to other things. And Joel and Holling start speaking and talking about her condition. And Joel says like, hey, well, actually, I was doing a little bit more research on this. And it turns out it's not unprecedented. There was somebody else who went into a music store, picked up a violin. Now it just keeps playing the violin. But Joel ends the story by saying like, you know, Holling, no one really knows. The point I'm trying to make is that there's similar cases, but we don't know if they ever return back to what they were beforehand. Right. The precedent was like a 14-year-old girl in Santiago, Chile, and she plays this wonderful violin without ever having any musical instruction before. And uh, as you said, like this is a this has happened. I think Joel says the good news is that none of this has been linked to any particular illness. Like very healthy people are affected by this. Uh, it can happen to healthy people too. It, it's you don't have to worry about the baby or Shelley's health. But Holling does bring up your point, Charles. That you know, does it ever stop? And Joel has to say, who knows? Like we, <laughs> that is uh, that unfortunately has not been documented. We get our next musical number with Shelley singing a song to the crib. In my opinion, this is the best song in the episode. It's very pretty, very musical, very heartwarming. And I think the, the alley-oop, the one-two punch is um, as Shelley is singing to this crib, we see in soft focus in the background, Holling has entered into the doorway and he's listening to her sing. And then he starts to sing with her. And he's got a pretty good voice too. Now, I don't think, uh, I don't know if the actors for Shelley and Holling are musically trained or not. In fact, I'm fine if they're if they're not. I think. Oh, John Cullum is definitely musical trained. Right. He's like, because isn't he like uh, Broadway or he's uh, he does a lot of yeah. stage. He did uh, Shenandoah on mm. the 20th century, You're in Town, the musical. And uh, I'm pretty sure he got the Tonys. <laughs> That's right. From yeah, those does, uh, previously mentioned he does ones. Have a, he does have that, those Tonys. Um, yeah, this is right in his wheelhouse. He's a great singer. And I love those harmonies at the end that he sings. You know, he's, he's really good. And gosh, that almost made me want to just like cry. It's so pretty when he comes in and he joins her in singing. I didn't write down the lyrics, but I can kind of give you my perception of what was happening in this musical number. Shelley is worried that when she brings this child into the world, this child is going to have a mother who can only sing. And she's saying things like, you know, when this, you know, when you, when you fall and hurt your knee, I'm going to sing to you. Or when you can't go to sleep at night, I'll sing to you. Uh, but there's also an anxiety that she has. Uh, almost like this is not going to be a normal childhood. She is um, an imperfect parent. And now with Holling, she's going to be an imperfect partner because we've already learned that Holling has uh, some issues with maybe what's happening. And what I really loved about the whole idea of this, as goofy as it is, this is probably the wildest fiction I think that the show has ever pulled. And that's saying a lot. Maybe Maybe it's not the wildest, but it's one of the wildest things that has ever happened on the show. But I think it draws a, a striking analogy to real life of just, uh, isn't this 
something that all parents probably go through, worried about being an imperfect parent, uh, an imperfect mom, an imperfect wife, and those anxieties that you go through with childhood. Of course, this isn't real life because maybe there are some precedents, but this is not normal. But I think it can stand in for some very real um, universal feelings. We don't all sing, but we all have these anxieties about ourselves. Yeah, I think that it resolves itself really nicely saying like, you know, you may have these anxieties right here, your doubts and your insecurities right here, but as long as I'm with you, then we can tackle it together, which Mm. is essentially what they are singing about right here. I think it's a great shot of using the crib a lot. That crib is made of some very handsome light brown wood and it's always in the shot whenever they're singing pretty much. I would say like 75% 75% of the their uh, that crib is got some screen time right there. And like I had said previously, wood is a recurring theme in this episode. And previously, Chris had said, like, you start with wood and you end with wood. Well, you're starting with wood right here. They're having a child being born into this wooden crib. So you're restarting life right here. Yeah. And I really like that the episode didn't end with... Uh... Shelly like getting better and stopping singing, you know, but so who knows like what will happen in the, in the season five premiere, if she's still going to be singing or not. But, uh, but uh, the, the meaning behind that is, uh, or the reason I like it is, you know, because we get, as you said, Charles, Holling is going to be right by her side, regardless, he's singing with her. And uh, I think that's just a beautiful ending we've got for this storyline. I think that's the last time we see them, I think. Yeah, that's the last time that we see them right there. Do you want to move on to Joel and Maggie's plotline? Sure. Yeah, we'll save old Vicky for the end. Joel and Maggie, I feel like, have a pretty pretty small plotline compared to the other two. So we can get through that quickly. Uh, as we said before, uh, we start with Joel like golfing with Ed. But um, when he really starts the plotline with Maggie... He's in his office and Maggie is just hanging out. You know, she seems to have some free time or something. She's there to pick up some sort of, uh, what is it? It's like some sort of blood samples that he's got to get flown to uh, some other hospital or medical center. Yeah, and it's a great intro shot because what's happening right here is that on the left and the right side of the frame, you see the hallway from the perspective of looking at the front door. And we almost never get this particular angle. It's almost always the opposite end. But this time, in the center of the shot, which is the door that Maggie enters, we see her right there going through the wooden door. And on the left and the right side is also like the wooden walls right there. So she's being literally surrounded by wood. And what makes the scene even more fantastic is that the camera flows with her. They go in one room and then out that room and then into another room. And it's all one continuous shot of the camera moving with them. Yeah. And of course, you're going to say, of course, this building's made with wood. But this is a very uh, specific, unique shot, like you said, Charles. I don't think we ever see that angle before. And it is pretty obvious, like sort of bare wood walls, like it's natural finish or whatever. So it is. it does bring that image to your head. And Charles, actually, in a past episode, I was incorrect when I um, pointed out to you, I think you were saying like that this office must be a set. And I was like, no, 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 this is a real building. It is a real building that has a real exterior and a real interior, but they also made a set exactly like reproduce this on a soundstage. So there will be scenes when Joel will walk from the inside to the outside and maybe it's continuous. But I think usually, even when they're in that lobby area, that is also a set too. So there is a 
there is a real um, exterior and interior, but I feel like you, you're probably right, Charles. And with this scene with Maggie, when she enters, we can see the outside, but I'm pretty sure that's a painted backdrop. I could be wrong, but it might be like a projection, but it's probably like a painted backdrop of the outside, the exterior of what would be, you know, outside that office, you know, like the main street. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's really interesting right there. Well, yeah. So in this scene, uh, as I was saying, like Maggie seems to have all the time in the world. Joel feels a bit rushed. He's like, I know I said I would have this ready for you at two. And she's like, that's fine. Like really no problem. And Joel, <laughs> Joel's like, all right, if I have to admit it, I was playing golf and Maggie she doesn't care. And Joel like feels like so guilty. Like she's going to start yelling at him. Like, come on, Fleischman, you're wasting my time. But that doesn't happen. Uh, Maggie is uh, playing it cool, cool as a cucumber. And uh, Joel overworks himself and not even sure what happens. He's like trying to open a cabinet or something and he like bangs his foot. I think he ends up saying he he fractured his foot in a later scene, but he hurts himself here. Yeah, and I think it's careful detail to show that he injures his foot on a wooden cabinet mm, right yeah. here. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I know I'm going on this wood thing, no, but like no, seriously, no. once they implement that idea, <laughs> you, your mind's gonna go there. It's like uh, it's like the Northern Lights episode where anytime you can see like a light or they say like when they say Miller Light, you know, all these things are. Um, <laughs> it really is. Yeah, it's. I think it's intentional. Yeah, he's got like a wooden like. I don't know what to call it. It's not a pencil holder. It's, it's like, it's supposed to store files, I think. Not files, not like F-I-L-E-S. I mean files as in like P-H-I-A-L-S, like a tube. Oh, um, or V-I-A-L-S, vials? Yeah. Vials, is, yeah. Is that the same thing? Uh, I don't know what the other one was. There's a P-H? I thought it was a P-H-I-A-L-S. Oh, it is. Wow. I've never seen it spelled that way, but you're totally right. You could spell it either. That must be like archaic or something, or I guess maybe that's... Uh, it's probably like the British way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but you're right. Yeah, he's got the little vial storage there. Yeah, made of wood right there. And I think it's interesting that he injures himself on a wooden cabinet right there, because the way he fixes himself is by using a wooden crutch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we see in the very next scene, it's really cool, actually. I like this um, this opening shot. It's continuous, steady cam, and it starts on uh, very low. We're inside of, I'm guessing, like the town hall church area. And Joel's foot, which is like all bandaged and the crutch come into the frame. So we're really low on his feet and the camera follows and begins to rise as we see Joel crutching himself into like a, one of the pews, you know, he sits himself down. Uh, very cool shot. And again, featuring uh, the injury, but also the wooden crutch that you mentioned. Yep. In this scene, Maurice is holding a town hall meeting on what to do with old Vicky. And we're going to talk about old Vicky more. But for the sake of Joel's plotline, what's happening here is that Joel is being conscripted to become the doctor. I don't <laughs> know if that's the right term. The person that's going to diagnose this tree. I is there a term for someone that like exclusively looks at plant health? You know, I don't know. Joel keeps saying in this episode, he says, I'm a internist, not a botanist. You know, he's a medical doctor, but I don't know if there is a, a specific uh, profession. Holter, that, oh, horticulturist? Horticulturalist or horticulturist. Uh, is that for flowers or that can be any sort of a plant? Uh, it says here that it's an expert in garden cultivation and management. I would imagine that okay. trees fall underneath that, uh, yeah, management. Underneath that umbrella. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, that's not what Joel is. But yeah, he's being conscripted, as you said, to do this. Uh, that This was a scene that felt very season one because, uh, you know, Joel bends under Maurice's pressure 
Like Maurice can just have one single command and Joel, you know, there's there's no uh, argument. Joel's just like, fine, I'll do it. <laughs> but we can, uh, should we come back to that? Let's Let's focus now just on Joel and Maggie, right? Well, we talked about the next scene with Maggie. It's when she's talking to Shelly about, and you know, we get the song about the snake. So we, we talked about that. And uh, I think after that, Maggie comes to Joel. And uh, Joel, I, th- I feel like throughout this episode, anytime Maggie approaches Joel and she says, uh, basically, what does she say? It's not you, it's me. Like, you know, this is like the Seinfeld line that I, I guess maybe predates Seinfeld. But uh, she's saying... I think you pointed this out, Charles, about the song with the snake that, you know, people are what they are and you're not gonna be able to change them. So Maggie, her coming to peace about this is uh, that uh, Joel is just not a nice person and she's got to live with that. She says, you're not nice. I am, (laughs) which is also that angers Joel. He's like, where do you get off telling me that you're a nice person? Yeah. So it's not that she got like the wrong message from that song. <laughs> it's just that she's unilaterally deciding that right. he is this way, even if that is the truth or not, which is of course angering Joel who feels that like he's being painted an unfair color right here. Maggie is wearing a barnyard brown coat right there. Lots of brown that we're seeing all throughout. There's even wooden speakers in the background. Oh, like, um, like bookshelf speaker, like your uh, like audio speakers? Yeah, like audio speakers right there. Sweet. You can see it in the shot whenever Joel and Maggie are both sitting at the table right there. Yeah, we also see uh, Joel has been doing some reading, or he's got some reading ahead of him on his table. He's got uh, two books. The one on top says trees, and then the one below it says western forests, I think I could see. But um, we don't talk about trees very much in this scene. We uh, we have this argument, and Joel, uh, in a, in a fit of anger, Sort of like he's walking about the kitchen. He slams a drawer on his hand, <laughs> and that's uh, it's pretty pretty hilarious. Yeah, once again, wood causing him problems right there. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Um, let's see. And next, Maggie once again goes to see Joel while he's um, in his office. She has brought Joel some surgical supply brushes, and Joel says, "I never ordered those." She says, no, I know, but they were on sale. So I figured I'd pick some up. They were on like an amazing sale. So here we see Maggie being way too nice. And immediately Joel senses uh, her kindness to be danger for him. So he immediately backs off sort of defensively, afraid of further harm. And of course, this causes him to fall and, and hurt himself some more. I do like Joel's acting in the scene, whatever he's saying, like, I'm being paranoid. No, 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 I'm not. Don't come any closer right here. Like, do you think this cast is a hallucination? Do you yeah. think this, like, uh, crutch is fake? Um, he really goes really into it. It's a fun scene right there. Yeah, of course, it's uh, crazy to believe that someone being nice is going to somehow hurt you. But Joel has empirical data, I guess he says, like, this actually happened to me. It keeps happening when I'm around you. You know, there might be other... Uh, it's like, of course, correlation is not causation. Like, you know, maybe these things can be related, but they don't cause the, you know, Maggie's kindness does not actually cause the danger. But there is some uh, real reality effects, uh, not just a hallucination, as Joel says. This brings us to the final scene between Joel and Maggie, where Joel goes to Maggie's house right here. He wants to talk to her, wants to apologize. Uh, but mainly he's there to like, Barter. <laughs> yeah, he enters in and 
I think it's funny to me, at least it seemed like Joel, uh, well, Maggie is like preparing, uh, some dinner or something. So she's like chopping some vegetables. And it, to me, it seemed that Joel was like constantly eyeing the, um, knife block where all the knives were <laughs> like, as if to fear that this might somehow involve itself in one of his, in, his future injuries. But let's see, Joel, I think is asking for Maggie to stop being nice to him. Yeah, and in in return, Maggie wants Joel to start being less of a jerk right there. So they're trying to reach like an equilibrium right there where like one was too much to the left and one was too much to the right and now they're trying to go to the center. So you drag one side more to the center and then you do it to the other side, drag that one more to the center and eventually you get like a pretty healthy median right there. And... Yeah, I feel like it's kind of a neat resolution, but I also feel like I feel like we're retreading the same yeah. grounds from previous episodes. <laughs> yeah, it's happening again and again. In fact, um, the whole idea that Joel was uh, telling Maggie not to be nice to him is a, a perfect reflection of that one time. It's a deleted scene in the big feast that we talked about. Uh, it was that scene that we really loved, Charles. We couldn't believe it got deleted, but during uh, the party at the big feast. Things are going really nicely between Joel and Maggie, and she pulls him aside and she says, could you please just stay angry at me? It's just easier for me that way. And uh, Joel, you know, who's been, who's been really nice to her this episode, uh, you know, agrees with that. And uh, it's, a, it's that kind of moment, Charles, that we talked about where in a romantic comedy where you know that the two characters really love each other, but they can't accept that. They, they can't you know, sign off and finally be together, uh, which is just that perfect, like tugging at your heart. So we've seen that before in a deleted scene. And I mean, on top of that, just uh, they're constantly trying to find some sort of equilibrium, you know, where they can survive. If it's like, we both have to be friends or we both have to acknowledge that we slept together or like, you know, I'm nice, you're mean, we're this, we're that. Uh, So yeah, I feel like this is this is happening more than once. Yeah. I, in the context of this episode, I kind of understand it because what they're trying to do is that they're trying to reset the, the status quo. So if we're going with the theme of rebirth, we're having a cycle that goes in and out and in and out. They're trying to show that with these two characters where like, all right, well, you were branching a little bit too far off and I was branching the other direction. We're going to reset the cycle. We're going to go back to square one where you. I'm, I'm just trying to return back to normalcy right here. So that I get, but I feel like if you're just trying to demonstrate a theme of cycles, there's a better way to do it than to go through Joe and Maggie's relationship once again. I feel like there's something that they can tackle. Even with those same two characters, there's another way to handle it than their romantic relationship. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, this feels a little overtread, so maybe trying a new angle. But uh, I'll take up what you said. You know, this is sort of like resetting. We'll see what happens, I guess, in season five if we're going back uh, back to a clear slate or what exactly will happen with their relationship. But that's a whole season away from us now. Uh, this is the end we leave with Maggie and Joel. Maggie will be mean if Joel agrees to be nice. But we've still yet to talk about old Vicky, which we began at the beginning of this episode. Old Vicky is dying. So let's see. If we want to follow along old Vicky's plotline, well, we see Maurice walk into Ruthann's store. And Ruthann is there with Walt and with Ed. Uh, 
And they all seem concerned because, of course, Ed is bringing the news of these uh, dying leaves that he picked from old Vicky. And uh, Maurice, on the other hand, he seems quite pleased. I think Ruthann in this scene says, now don't go calling the toothpick factory yet, Maurice. So we get the sense that Maurice, for whatever reason, maybe wants to see this tree taken down. Yeah, Maurice is extremely excited right there. Uh, what's kind of neat about this scene is that uh, Walt's there. Yeah. I feel like, are they going to do more with Walt than have him be backdrop dressing? Yeah, he's he's definitely growing into his own character. We've seen him, uh, we see him here. And then as we spoke, like he's helping with the crib. And Charles, I'll give you a little teaser for season five. Uh, he does become more of a recurring cast member, like a, not just a, like a background extra or something. He he begins to grow his own uh, his own character. Mm, okay, well that makes more sense because I was wondering why <laughs> he was he didn't have any lines. Like he was oh. just there. <laughs> well, it's just in all these scenes. Some for some reason. All right, that brings us to the aforementioned town hall scene that we touched on briefly. So what's going on in this scene is that Maurice is calling a town hall meeting to discuss the state of old Vicky. What should we do with her? And like we said previously, Joel kind of ambles on into the room in the crutches right there. And we see the town in a little bit of a frenzy right there. I think most of them, if not all of them, are against Maurice wanting to cut down old Vicky because they feel that he's going to put some sort of like structure to store his tractors in. <laughs> and the one who says that line is someone we met last episode and a couple, you know, seasons ago, but he had a really big plot line last episode. It's Springer. Mr. Ivory Springer is here coming to the defense of old Vicky. Uh, you're right. I think Maurice is literally the only person who wants to cut this down and, you know, Springer accuses Maurice of wanting simply to, as you said, put up some sort of structure, some sort of storage unit. Uh, he also accuses Maurice of poisoning old Vicky. Like he probably poisoned this tree so that it would have to be cut down. And, or he would, you know, he would have a reason to cut it down. But uh, this is also where Maurice enlists Joel to be the tree doctor. Joel is very compliant. What else happens in this scene? That's about it, right? That's pretty much it. But I do think that it's very fitting that it's Springer that's coming to the defense of old Vicky. I don't think it's necessarily that he likes to tree a lot. It's just that whenever you would build that large structure to house your tractors, it would be encroaching onto his point of view of where he sees his farm because those two are neighbors. Yeah. So it makes sense that Springer will be the one saying that line. Yeah, Maurice says something to Springer, like, you can't even, like, why do you worry about old Vicky? You can't even see her. Springer says, no, if I'm on the roof of my barn, I can see the top of her <laughs> trees, you know? So, uh, but yeah, there, there's always been a feud between uh, Springer and Maurice, we see. I think when Springer is first introduced, it's because he, like, files some sort of police report against Maurice um, back in season three. But let's see. Just moving forward with old Vicky, we talk about uh, how Chris can now walk about now. He's actually walking around K-Bear. He's not sitting at the console with that uh, microphone on the boom arm. He's walking around with his wireless headset and all his goatee glory. And he, this is the scene where he kind of talks about wood and our everyday life and how it's a big deal. You know, there's a strong connection between trees and humanity. I wrote down Chris says... Why? Like, why are we surrounded by trees so much? I guess they're like an abundant resource. But, you know, there is some sort of, I'm guessing Chris is suggesting that there's some sort of 
perhaps mystical or supernatural reason for such a strong connection between humans and trees. I think he even uh, gives us the mission to go kiss a tree. Yeah, he's like implying that there's a uh, a yin and yang, like a destiny between mankind and our fellow arboreal brethren right here. I think that it's this is a, a really neat scene because like you had said previously, he's got that wireless headset and they're kind of playing with that along with the camera because it's moving all about in the studio. First we see Chris and then the camera kind of pains outward of where he's looking. So you're seeing the camera looking outside in which you can see this massive 18-wheeler with a bunch of logs go trucking through town. Oh, yeah. And then we see Chris go to the front door to kind of get like a better view. And the camera kind of looks out of one window into that other front door because they're, we're looking through panes of glass that are transparent. And then Chris walks back into his original place. And it's a really dynamic shot, in my opinion, even though it's not your typical definition of dynamism right there. But... I think that it has a lot of movement right there. I think they're really trying to celebrate Chris being hands-free. Oh, for sure. And you know, I thought that maybe the whole idea of this um, wireless headset had some sort of um, meaning in that Chris is now uh, unrooted, so unlike a tree, but I don't think there's ever any sort of like overarching plot about this uh, wireless headset. It's not like Chris abandons this later. I think... uh, For all we know, he might, as you said, Charles, he might continue being wireless in the next season. But just something that popped in my head. Hmm, That's a good thing he said about the roots. I didn't connect those two together. So let's go along with the next scene, which is where the town is now assembled uh, to go see old Vicky. It's a very funny scene because I I didn't, I don't know why this didn't process in my brain the first time I watched it. But re-looking at this scene, the townsfolk have like trucks pulled up and like they're in the bed of the truck with chairs that they brought it's like a tailgate party right here except they're all here to just see joel diagnose this tree yeah as you said everybody's got their lawn chairs or they're sitting in the backs of trucks they're there before joel even arrives you know but um i've got a soundbite this is sort of joel's initial reactions upon uh well i guess you know he's seen old vicky he was there in the first scene but now he's got to approach it with a uh, with the eye of a doctor, perhaps, trying to diagnose it. So here is what Joel says. See something, Doc? Well, I'm not sure, but right here on the epidermal layer, bark, I mean, it's a rather large keloid, which is an exuberance of scar tissue. Now, by the size of it, it's indicating a, a fairly serious laceration or injury. Lightning, summer of 82. Tell me, does anyone know about this cavity? Is it congenital or, or acquired? It's always been there, Joel. Uh-huh. Is Olakotakatuvik dying, Joel? I really, I, I just, I, I, I can't be sure. You know, this reminds me of that episode when um, the plane crashes and Joel tries to fix it because he says, uh, you know, like an engine is not unlike a human heart. Um, and, you know, he does a pretty good job of fixing certain things. Uh, but yeah, it's cool how he has to use his skills, um, even though he's not a botanist, a horticulturalist, uh, horticulturist, he's still going to give it his best attempt, his best approach. Right. And it's also, once again, another scene where they're underneath old Vicky. So the branches are in the frame once again at the top. That just shows that it's being intertwined throughout these townsfolk's lives. Exactly. And I think here, you know, everyone's got to start walking away because Joel, as you heard in the soundbite, he's like, well, I really don't know. 
and there's like a groan and everyone starts walking away. And they do that thing, which I think we've described before that I think is really funny when one person is still like talking, but we get a shot of just like, not even people turning around, but their backs are already to him. They're all like already leaving and he's like still <laughs> talking to them. It's like, you know, I'm going to try my best, but I, I don't know. I can't figure it out. And there's like already walking out of the shot, packing up their chairs and such. <laughs> Well, I wonder what they would have done if the answer had been in the other direction. Like, would they have stayed, like, with the, the tree? Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> they're yeah. leaving out the way, right? It probably would have been the <laughs> like, same. Like, they're they're getting ready to pack up, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. The next little bit I think about old Vicky is back with Chris. Uh, he's reading from Hank Thoreau. That's that's a that's what he calls him. Uh, I guess he's he must mean Henry David Thoreau, Hank being like a uh, nickname, I suppose. Uh, I didn't actually clock like what text he's reading from, though later we get some more Thoreau and Chris, uh, he cites his sources in that scene, like he says what he's reading. So uh, we'll have some more Thoreau for you later. But Maurice walks in because he's looking for some crew to take down old Vicky. And, uh, you know, of course the, the diagnosis has not been made yet, but as soon as it happens, you know, Maurice, his approach is that it's got to be sort of like a bandaid maybe, you know, you got to kind of remove it as soon as possible because you don't want people to think about it for too long. You know, Maurice only has, maybe he's like worried that they're going to set up some sort of like preservation for it. Um, so he's got to act fast and, uh. Chris seems to be excited by this prospect, the the primal violence, uh, the artistic nature of destruction, how that can be an artistic endeavor in a way. But ultimately, he has to turn Maurice down because he says, uh, well, I guess he has some very fond memories with old Vicky. He says he read Heidegger's Being and Time underneath that tree. He quotes authentic existence, inauthentic existence. Can't say I'm too familiar with Heidegger, but obviously, Regardless of the subject matter, Chris has a strong connection with this tree. Yeah. Well, you had said that Maurice had wanted to get rid of old Vicky because he feels that he has to move very fast or else they're going to set up uh, some type of preservation for it. I feel like that's one take. But also, if we're being more generous to Maurice, he could also be thinking that like the earlier you put it down, the less suffering that the townsfolk have to go through. Because in his mind... It's a foregone conclusion that the tree is dead. So if we ride that as the premise, then you need to cut to the chase immediately and uh, put the poor thing out of its misery. Actually, yeah, I think you're right. I think that is the correct reading. I I think your reading is also correct too, though. I I think that if you wanted to read Maurice as a more sinister character, that could be one where he he also wanted to cut the chase, but like the chase is like the townsfolks right there. He's trying to put them off. Uh, I also think that it's nice that they talk about memories. So Chris is saying that like, I read a lot of Heidegger underneath that thing, being in time. And in the background, whenever he's saying that, there's a shot of Maurice and then on the wall behind them is a lot of photographs. And... I think it's really being shown because those photographs are all memories of Chris's time. So presumably amongst those photographs, there's probably one with old Vicky in there. Right. And look, I just did a little bit of a reading on Heidegger and specifically being in time. There's a term that he introduces, Dasein. I'm not really sure if I'm saying that right, but um, it's been translated to mean being there. So, uh, you know, kind of living in the moment, being in, in the now. And of course... Maybe it has something to do with, um, you know, how time is always going to be passing. Old Vicky is never going to be alive forever. So as we see, you know, 
we're going to have to say goodbye to old Vicky, but you know, we have to be in the world, in our time right now as much as we can. Nice. Okay. So we talked about Chris doing the field reporter broadcast. It's pretty cool. Chris is out with old Vicky. He's got his headset on and there's somebody assisting him with like a, maybe like a little mixer and some sort of a broadcast station. They're live in the field and they're powered by like a truck's car battery, like attached to this uh, device. And uh, this is where Chris cites his source. He's reading Maine Woods by uh, Thoreau. Yeah, he's reading from the truck bed. And Henry David Thoreau is a good pick for trees. I think like if it's not about society, I think the other half of his quotes are always about nature. Yeah, I think Henry David Thoreau is almost always quoted with that. So that is a really good pick right there. And there's a transition in the scene because it cuts to Ed working in Ruthann's store and Ed has to turn off the K-Bear radio station of where Chris is reading from because he's being too laden with guilt. Yeah, he turns to Ruthann and says he can't bear it. He references the film I Confess and explains how it's about a man who, you know, confesses some sort of murder. And I really love the way that the actor for Ed is playing this scene uh, he looks sick, almost like sick to his stomach, and I, I I feel so bad for him. But Ed has to confess in his own way that he um, well he admits to carving his and Lightfeather's initials into the tree. That was his like girlfriend in the past episodes um, or that one episode. Uh, so he feels like he's perhaps um, wronged old Vicky in some way, or maybe his carving his initials their initials into the tree has somehow led to old Vicky's sickness or demise. Yeah, I guess he feels that it was uh, hubris on his part that, one, their relationship would last forever, and two, old Vicky would last forever right there. So it's kind of like coming back around to bite him. Yeah, it's like he's finally realizing that these things don't don't stay around forever. Maybe also like, you know, he, he feels like he, it was maybe disrespectful to old Vicky now in hindsight. Uh, but Ruth Ann has some really great words, I think. I've got her soundbite. Uh, this is her responding to Ed. You know, Ed, when someone dies, it makes you think of the things you wish you had done and the things you wish you hadn't. I remember a few years ago, my niece's kids were up visiting. We were out berry picking. I turned my back for a minute and they ran off. I found them 30 feet up Utakalakatuvik. Sitting on a branch, swinging their legs, happy as clams. Yeah, I bet. Well, I made them come down right away. I was afraid they'd fall and break their necks. And afterward, I felt bad. Because you'd yelled at them? Oh, no. Because of what I'd done to Vicky. Trees like to have kids climb on them. Oh, right. But I'm pretty sure Vicky forgave me. After all, she is a tree. And trees are much bigger than we are and much, much more forgiving. Listening to that just now, uh, when Ruthann is talking about those kids up in the tree, I think she says, it sounds like she says, they're happy as clams. I remember the subtitle said, happy as clowns. What did you hear, Charles? <laughs> uh I heard what the subtitle said. <laughs> Happy as clowns. Yeah. That is, yeah, you're right. It's clams. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Is the saying clams, is, that's a thing? That sounds a little more, that sounds, I don't even know if that's a saying, but that sounds more natural. No, than that's a, Happy as that's clams. a saying. Okay. Happy as clam. <laughs> yeah. Whoever subtitled it put, uh, put clowns there, but it is funny that what's the joke? It's like, Ed is like, oh, you, you felt bad that you yelled at those kids. 
She's like, no, I felt bad for old Vicky. Of course, trees love having kids climbing on them. You know. Yeah, it's just like that thing you said before where you felt that Ed had maybe disrespected old Vicky. Ruth Ann also feels in the same way that she had disrespected old Vicky. But as she says, trees are much more forgiving. And, you know, who knows? We're, we're ascribing, this is like anthropomorphizing a tree. But I do think it is a very comforting thought. And I think it's the right thing um, to, to, to tell Ed in this moment. I think it does help. Yeah. And that brings us to the next scene, which is the climax of the episode, where Maurice has assembled a crew to potentially cut down Vicky. I think they're just waiting on one little thing right there. And Springer is still trying to defend it. <laughs> trying to say, like, no, 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 no. Like, the, the, there's still time on the clock. We still got to see what Joel has to say. Unfortunately, Joel was too injured, like we said previously, <laughs> sustained a number of injuries. <laughs> so he sends Ed in his steed, and Ed reads his report. Where's Flight? I'm afraid he's had a bad fall. Well, what about Vicky? Oh, he's entrusted me with the report. Well, you want to read it to us? Oh, yeah. It says here, uh, after consulting with Arborist from the Tree People organization... It is my opinion that the black cottonwood known as Old Vicky has developed an infectious process of a fungal etiology. Although leaf desiccation and decline in vigor could be symptomatic of several agents, the mycelia oppressed to the sapwood are a clear indication of Armillaria melia, commonly known as shoestring rot. Well, what the hell does that all mean? Let the man finish, Springer. Shoestring rot is a fatal illness which is not responsive to treatment. Research shows the rate of degeneration is swift. Pressed to give a prognosis, I would say, given the advanced state of the disease, the patient only has a few months to live. This is a really great low moment, I think, for this episode. I like that when Ed reads the words like fatal illness, we get a slow pan across the faces of the townsfolk as they're listening. And, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of intense acting just to see on their faces that this is some pretty hard hitting news. And what I like about this such a low beat is that, you know, if I had to guess this episode, it would have been like, you know, at the, at the nick of time, like Springer is expecting, like, it seems like the villain Maurice has won and he's going to start, he revs up the chainsaws, but in the last moment we figure something out and we see that Vicky still has a chance, but very swiftly, we understand that it's even worse than the fact that Maurice has got his way and he's going to take this tree down. The truth is that Vicky was already dead and there was no way to save her. Yeah, it's like Maurice was right. He was just putting it out of its misery. But in this case, it's not the tree's misery, but the townsfolk's misery. He wants to make sure that he can peel that band-aid off really quickly right there. Uh, we finally get a description of the tree. Previously, we didn't know what type of tree it was, but Ed says that it's a black cottonwood tree, which is a tree that is found in Western North America, particularly in Alaska. It's predominantly used for timber, and they mature very quickly. I think within like 25 years, they can be used for timber right there. But the neat thing is that they have a lifespan of potentially up to 400 years. So using that information we can gander that 400 years is longer than one who waits. Yeah. And there we go. Old Tree, the title of the episode. Very old. This is probably, you know, nearly a 400-year-old tree, maybe more. They have a funeral for old Vicky. I believe this is in the brick. And Marilyn is walking beside perhaps one of the limbs that they have laid out on the table. It's quite beautiful. They have the tree lamb and some, like, flowers and decorations for this 
sort of funeral ceremony. And she tells uh, a tale of, of when old Vicky saved her life from, you know, she was out in the middle of nowhere, like in the middle of this field, and it started to rain and hailstones started falling from the sky. And luckily enough, she saw old Vicky right over there. So she ran underneath the tree and the tree limbs protected her from the falling hailstones, which obviously could have led to a concussion, maybe death. Yeah, I think that's really nice that the story connects with the visual motif of having the branches always hang over their heads. So it demonstrates that the tree was protecting them whenever it was at the top of the frame right there. Yeah, and again, we talked about Chris sitting underneath the tree, reading Heidegger, and again, now Marilyn being protected by the tree. As you said earlier, Charles, kind of in our first setting up of this episode, I liked what you said, the the way that the tree sort of covers, it's almost like the sky covering us. It's the tree covering all of the townsfolk and it intertwines itself with each of them. Now we see the aftermath of cutting down Vicky, which is Maurice going to visit the old stump right there. And Springer comes along to tell him like, hang on, like just because you <laughs> cut down that tree doesn't mean that like you can still build that ugly shelter of yours. And Maurice gives up. Ordinarily, he would be jubilant, but he's in a state of defeat right here. He says that when old Vicky came down, I couldn't stand the empty sky. It needed something to fill it. And to exasperate that, the shot that we're seeing throughout this entire scene is wide open. There's no more branches covering the top of the frame. It's just the mountains in the background and the blue sky. Yeah. Maurice doesn't feel any sort of sense of satisfaction. He says, this is the scene of my greatest triumph, and I don't feel anything. To tell you the truth, I sort of miss the sight of her. So, you know, she's down. It's a down ending, and at least we see that Maurice, in the end, is uh, unsatisfied and is, uh, in a way, mourning just like the town. That reminds me of uh, a Vlogbrothers video from John Green. Uh, you might have seen it before. It's the broccoli tree. Hmm. This sounds familiar. It's the moment where he was talking about this photographer that was living in Sweden. And every single day to work, he would pass a tree in a park that kind of looked like a huge stalk of broccoli. And there was something about it where the photographer just really enjoyed it. So every single day, he would upload photos of this tree onto his social media. And initially, they were just you know, ordinary photographs right there. A bird in the sky, a jogger, a happy couple passing by. But then suddenly it started getting more traction. Like people started to notice. He built his own Instagram for it. It was getting <laughs> really famous. People were like coming to see the broccoli tree. Now he was posting pictures of people taking pictures of the broccoli tree. It was getting really, really crazy over there. But then one day he noticed that when he went to go photograph the tree, something was different. Uh, upon closer examination, it became obvious. And he wrote in a very furious and heartbroken Instagram post that you absolutely cannot unsaw a tree. And the damage was irreversible because a few days later, the tree died right there. And so, Wait, someone like vandalized it or did they cut it down? Yeah, someone had vandalized a tree. They had like cut off like a couple of the branches, but like that was enough to cause this tree to die right there. Hmm. And... Yeah, it's uh, heartbreaking because he, he goes on to say like that tree that was like providing shade to people and was providing shelter under its canopy, like that's all gone right there. 
you can't unsaw the tree. But he ends up on the optimistic note by saying that you also can't unsee one either. Like, it lives on in your memories right there. Yeah. And that's what I think of whenever I see this scene with Maurice and Springer and old Vicky. Maurice is realizing that maxim of like, yeah, this is a permanent action. That's really good. Yeah, Maurice still has that memory of seeing the tree. And now as you describe, Charles, it's completely empty there. But we get a nice little resolution here because the next time we see Maurice and uh, the stump that was old Vicky or where it was, we see that Maurice is planting a new tree. And it's not even just a sapling. You know, uh, Chris says something like, you know, you could have planted a sapling. It's not going to matter in a hundred years. It'll look the same. But Maurice plants a moderately grown tree because Maurice wants to see the tree again. He wants to have that connection again, not just to a a little sapling, but to a a growing tree. And uh, I don't know, is this like some sort of metaphor for like they got renewed for a fifth season or something? It's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, we could definitely read it like that. (laughs) I I think that obviously the themes of continuing the cycle of rebirth and death is really evident, especially in the last shot whenever we see them drive off and the camera stays on the stump and the new tree right there to its right. So, yeah, it's a very poignant scene. Gotta say, I am not a fan of the song that was on the DVD that we watched, Charles. Um, I couldn't even, like, I tried shazamming it, uh, and that's as far as I went. I I don't really care what that was. (laughs) But I did see the original song that played during broadcast, according to moosechick.com, was uh, Turn, Turn, Turn by The Birds, uh, which... Not even a huge fan of that song, but I think that would have played a lot better, I think, for the ending of this episode, for the ending of a season, you know? Yeah. I, I would say that this is, you know, it's it's a pretty good ending. Like, for a season finale, you look at a tree, you see, like, it's coming back. Yeah, I feel like this is a good season finale. Now, if we think about the season finales of, of Northern Exposure so far, we got a really great one in season one of Roar Borealis. Slow Dance, which is, I actually kind of like the ending of that, but it doesn't, it's such a short season. I think we talked, Charles, it doesn't really feel like like a great, like a huge season finale. Season three, Sicily, I know is a very, it's a fan favorite, but I, I'm not a big fan of that episode. It seems pretty saccharine, but it is uh, ambitious. You know, they go back in time. It's a huge number, uh, but I think this is a pretty good season finale. You know, if you gauge it with the rest of them. Yeah, I would probably say that this is my favorite one. Hmm. It, I'm not saying it's like an absolutely remarkable, like mind-blowing scene, but if you just compare it between like three other scenes of uh, the season <laughs> finale, I would say this is probably my favorite. Yeah, and of course, we're going to be talking about all this in our season four retrospective episode next week. Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. If you're listening, please write in to Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com and let us know what some of your favorite moments are from this season. What's your favorite episode? Uh, just general thoughts you have overall or on certain scenes. And also, if you'd like to record like an audio message, we'd love to play that on the podcast as well. But Charles, we've still got a little bit left to talk about in this episode. You know, we didn't mention this, but part of the mission statement of this podcast is to expand the reach of Northern Exposure. It's a show that was very popular when it came out and has uh, sort of fallen by the wayside. It's never been available for streaming and uh, not a lot of people know about it 
uh, at least younger people today. So as part of our mission, every episode of the podcast, we bring on a friend, someone who has never seen the show, maybe never heard of it sometimes, and ask them to watch the episode, give us their initial reaction. What do you think about this episode? Does it stand on its own? Does it stand okay in 2021? Because you know, this show is 30 years old. Sometimes it's uh, not as like hip to the times now. But uh, for this episode, we have my friend Cameron. She's a wonderful singer, an educator, a mother. I felt uh, when we first started this series, I was trying to think about specific episodes that would fit my friends. And of course, it's an easy fit, I guess. I thought of Cameron because she has such a wonderful voice, and this episode is sort of that musical episode. And sorry, Cameron, that it's taken this long for us to get, what, what number episode is this? We're four seasons through, and finally we've got Cameron on the podcast. But here we go. Let's hear what Cameron thought about this episode. Okay, so I just finished the episode, and I really enjoyed this episode. As someone who's never watched the show, I don't know the characters. Um, actually, after this, I kind of looked it up just a little bit because there were a couple of things that I wasn't quite um, sure about. But I, I mean, I really enjoyed this. Um, the beginning of the episode reminded me so much of the musical Oklahoma the fact that they have this town hall to decide the the verdict of what the what's going to happen to the tree and they decide that the doctor of all people is quote qualified to give a diagnosis for a tree which of course the doctor says that's not really within my expertise of course <laughs> but it just goes to show you it's kind of like small town politics that people kind of make the shots and it's like well you're going to do this because i <laughs> i say so but i i don't think it's necessarily like ill-placed the general vibe that you get from everyone is that they're wanting to do good I enjoyed you know the the way that these people were like their mannerisms and things um I I enjoyed the show's nostalgic vibe um and also comedy like I honestly laughed out loud whenever Shelly just was singing all the time (laughs) this show kind of had this um, kind of weird, like Broadway vibe, but it also fell straight into the Oklahoma vibe that I was feeling as well. The metaphors that are kind of put in place as far as like, can you change people? Um, you know, once a snake, always a snake, which, you know, is really thought provoking. You know, I, I like that they put that in there. You know, can, can you really change someone's behavior that consistently reveals themselves to be exactly who they are? Um, and then that's kind of, give it a full circle um, at the end of the episode whenever, you know, the doctor and, oh, I forget the other lady's name, decide that they're going to try to modify their behavior for the benefit of each other and that kind of thing. I found this show to be, or this episode at least, to be pretty progressive for the 90s. You know, as someone that's that really enjoys nature, kind of more the vegan lifestyle, it was interesting to see and here, you know, that we had this character reading on the radio um, literature talking about how our actions, um, especially for nature, have an impact on everything else. You know, and he comments on the fact that, okay, we're, we're all upset that this tree might be dying, yet here we are standing on wood floors and wood is over our heads. And it's almost like we take so much from 
things like a tree that we hardly even recognize anymore. And I think that's the revelation that everyone in the town has. You know, it's like we we took so much for granted from this tree, just kind of like being here, being um, a source of memories for us, a, a source of shade, shelter, um, beauty. And now it's going to be taken away. And so it just helps helps you realize how much you are impacted by the things around you and how much you impact the things around you. It reminded me a lot of the giving tree and how the giving tree gives everything that, you know, she can until she is a stump. And then, you know, she ends up just being a seat for someone that needs to rest. And I think it was just really forthcoming at the end for the original guy who wanted to have the tree torn down, planted a new one because he recognized the kind of like circle of life (laughs) in a way, you know, um, doesn't necessarily want to say it, I think, too much like for his character, but the way that the the show shows it is by him wanting to physically plant a tree and has a little bit of knowledge to take care of it so that that they can recreate something as a city um, that they mourned the loss of and go forward. So yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this episode and I honestly would love to see more. So I, <laughs> I'm i actually going to start watching this because I've, I've honestly never really watched it and um, it was great. So thank y'all for having me. The last thing that I want to say about the episode is in the back of my mind, at the end of all this, the song that is in my head is Wait For It by, or it's from Hamilton, the musical. While we are talking about musicals. Um, but in it, the, some of the lyrics say, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. And we keep living anyway. We rise and we fall and we break and we make our mistakes. And so I, I guess it's just that the town realized um, more fully at the end that like, oh gosh, like, death doesn't discriminate, you know, whenever they read kind of like the diagnosis of the tree, they're like, yep, the tree's dying. And people felt it, you know, and I think it was just a um, a beautiful moment kind of like for everyone to realize that like it, it is sad, you know, whenever you realize that life is taken away. But the, the beauty in that is that they tried to write or makes the circle of life to complete itself by, you know, the tree dying and then planting a brand new one right next to it to kind of grow up from um, that same ground. All right. That was Cameron with our guest commentary on this episode. Cameron, you're really hitting all of the uh, all of the points that me and Leah had made. Really great job on that. Felt like she did a much more succinct summarized version (laughs) we should just put that in the description like skip ahead to this you could listen to the first two hours or just listen to the the succinct precise yeah the the spark notes Yeah, this is like the perfect episode for her because I I knew that she was into musicals I'm pretty sure that going back into my memory I'm pretty sure in high school we put on a musical, and I want to say it was Oklahoma as well. Yeah, I can't remember if that was after I had left, but I do remember they started doing musicals. I want to say they did South Pacific one year, and I always wanted to see that, and I'm sorry I didn't make it to see that. But I do, (laughs) yeah, I think uh, Oklahoma, because I think I've seen, I remember seeing pictures too. They must have put that on. And Charles, you brought up Oklahoma whenever we were talking about this. Uh, Obviously, um, 
it's a musical. I, I don't know. What are, what are some other similarities between uh, Oklahoma and this episode? Yeah, I think what she means by that is that, like, it's like a small, tight-knit community. In this case, the town of Sicily and in the town in, in the Oklahoma, the musical, it's uh, <laughs> all of the characters going together. I don't think they actually state what town they're in in Oklahoma. But it's sure got to be. Like a, oh, wait, Oklahoma's a, a state. I was like, it's got to be the town of Oklahoma. <laughs> 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 I I've only listened to Oklahoma. I've never actually seen Oklahoma okay. with my own eyeballs right there. But <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say that that's pretty much the resemblance right there. And it, it, it would definitely match. So I think I just got really lucky naming Oklahoma as the reference of the musical I was making earlier. Well, yeah, I guess it does match. And Cameron points out sort of like the small town politics that we see in the town halls. And how Joel has to become a tree doctor, even though that's not his expertise. But it's like, you know, small town, everybody has to wear a lot of hats here because <laughs> we don't really have those resources. We don't have a tree doctor. Um, I guess who does, really? But Oh, wait, hang on. Like, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it, one of the famous songs from Oklahoma is uh, I Can't Say No. And then, like, everyone mm-hmm. knows that song. It's the one that's like, oh, I'm just a girl who can't say no. Da, 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 da. <laughs> it's that melody right there. And I guess if you compare that to Shelly in her first song, because she's kind of singing about the same things, but (laughs) it's kind of similar to I Can't Say No. So maybe Hmm. maybe that's a good time right there. (laughs) There we go. Uh, Let's see. Cameron also says everyone in the town is wanting to do good. And, you know, I forgot to mention this when we were talking about Joel and old Vicky, but I am really appreciative that Joel is like, he's doing his darndest. He doesn't know anything about trees, but he's like trying to, you know, he's reading those books, like we said, but there's like scenes where he's asking Marilyn to try to get specialists on the phone or to see if she can like, like he's like really trying very hard to try to get a specific copy of a book because he thinks that's going to help him. So I like that we see Joel, you know, he doesn't just shrug off this responsibility. He's, he's going to do his best. Yeah, definitely. He's still got he's still got the responsibilities of the town doctor. And I don't know why that line stuck out to me so much. Maybe it's because he generally doesn't refer to himself as the quote-unquote town doctor. Mm, yeah. Whenever you get those vibes, you think of like old vibes. Yeah, you know? <laughs> like, old-timey. Cameron mentioned that she enjoyed the nostalgic vibes. She really enjoyed the themes that they were pressing upon, like can we really change and are we just stuck in our ways? Yeah, you know, when she was talking about that, it made me think, you know, the idea, can you change a person? If we think about that, like in context of ending this season, is it like the show saying, here we are, like, this is what we are. This is how we're going to be. We're going to be ourselves. And like, that's our mission statement for our next season too. You know, it's like, this is what we, this is what we are with season four and we're not going to change. Oh, that is something to think about. So you're saying that like, it's a shot across the bow. They're saying like to the audience, like we might have given you like a little taste of Maggie and Joel, but don't expect any more of that. Oh, maybe so. I don't, I don't know. Actually, I was just trying to put it into context with just overall, not necessarily just Maggie and Joel, but the show itself. It's like, here we are. You can't, you know, we're not going to try to be something we're not, uh, just like an expression of their intent of their purpose and like what that's going to mean for one, the closing of this season and the beginning of another season. Oh, okay. I get what you mean right there. Cameron also points out that this is a pretty progressive show for the 90s. We have characters like Chris, who are very um, well-read, 
cultured, but mostly like they're, they're, he's a thoughtful character and modest, like humbling. Um, he talks about, well, Cameron mentions how he talks about in that scene, the way that humans have been impacted by trees and really invites you to think about how much you are impacted by your surroundings and how much you can have an impact on your surroundings. Cameron also relates this to the giving tree. Uh, I'm sure, Charles, you're you're familiar with the giving tree, right? Actually, I had to Google that. Is Whoa! That, I had to make sure. I'm pretty sure I read it when I was a child. Yeah, but yeah. Is that that's the Shell Silverstein story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it like ends with like the kid. Uh, does he like bring his kid? Like, does he like have a child and like no, brings that kid well, to the tree? Well, you know, this was like a huge. I th- I felt like this was everyone's. Uh, childhood growing up. And I guess, Charles, you do recognize it. You've seen it before. But I believe the story is like it's a tree and this boy is uh, playing underneath the tree and climbing its branches and falling in love, getting married under the tree. And then, uh, you know, when times are tough, the tree uh, offers its wood to him. Like he can chop it down and build a house for his family. And in the end, it's just a tree stump that's left alone because this boy has grown up and started his own family. And uh, it's pretty sad because the tree spends, you know, ages as a stump. But in the very end, uh, the boy who is now an old man returns to the tree. And uh, as an old man does, he doesn't have a lot of strength. So he has to rest and in some of his final moments, the tree can still be there for this boy who is now an old man who needs to rest and like sit on the stump of the tree. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that definitely fits then. Yeah, very sad, but very moving and kind of heartwarming in the end. Again, Cameron brings up this circle of life uh, and something we didn't talk about, but Maurice is also not just like continuing this circle, but he's going to be taking care of it. Cause remember in the episode, he like pours a bucket of like some B vitamins or something. Like he knows how to, how to take care of it and, and foster it. Yeah. Like he knows how to cut down the tree and he knows how to foster <laughs> a tree right there. But I mean, Hey, you know, you can't have one end without the other. Somebody's got to do it. Like, <laughs> is Maurice like the puppet master of... <laughs> Of this entire <laughs> I, I mean, I like know we painted that. him. I'm sure, yeah. Well, go ahead. <laughs> we painted them as the villain in this story, but like, you know, oftentimes somebody's got to take the villain role right there. <laughs> yeah, and in the end, I think he's like a hero in his own right. You know, he, I think you were right, Charles, when Maurice, like he wants to cut this tree down as soon as possible because he wants to help like the community get past this because this is going to be traumatic. And maybe Maurice doesn't really know this, or maybe he is prophetic and he can tell that this tree is going to cause a lot of pain because it is going to die. If it's not dead now, it will die at some point soon and it's going to cause a lot of trouble. So he wants to, as we said before, rip off the Band-Aid. But yeah, so perhaps he is uh, acting in a in a heroic fashion to help the town get past this. And with one last musical reference, Cameron brings up the musical Hamilton with the song Wait For It. And she's describing how the townsfolk are saying like anything will end right there. Like death doesn't discriminate. There is something very unique about this one. So the song Wait For It is sung by Aaron Burr. It's one of his standout songs. And in fact, I'm pretty sure that's going to be his like main song right there. That the motifs in Wait For It are repeated often whenever Aaron Burr sings. But for the people that don't know about this, Hamilton is a musical that is predominantly rap, but there are parts of it in which they are singing. The characters who rap 
are the characters that are very passionate and quick to think and will always act. Hamilton is, of course, the prime example of that. Aaron Burr is the opposite. He never raps until the very end whenever he loses his patience. In the song Wait For It, he's singing right here. And I bring this up because in this episode, we never really talked about this, but one reason why Shelley could be singing is just because she's exuberant about having a child right there. So she is now bursting from the seams and has to express herself through there. Whereas in this song right here, the only way that like Aaron Burke can never really express himself right here is just singing, but he never really acts. He always just waits for it right here, which is <laughs> why he only sings and doesn't rap. Yeah, man, I love that, uh, what you pointed out about Shelly singing because she's so happy. And we see that the the prospect of being happy forever, um, singing forever, is troubling. You know, Shelly knows that that would be impossible. And maybe that's part of her when she's like uh, singing to the crib alone. She knows that, you know, maybe she's singing now, but there's going to be times in her child's life when it's going to be rough and that can cause some anxiety. But then we get, of course, Holling joining her, sharing the exuberance, sharing the happiness and saying, you know, no matter what rough stuff comes our way, we can be happy together because we have each other and we've got the baby. Um, yeah. About the Wait For It song, things will come and things will go. And Cameron points out, you know, Maurice maybe understands this with the circle of life and wants things to, you know, we, we've got to keep the cycle going. Even though death is so tragic, um, we continue. You know, we start again with this new tree. Okay, Charles, once again, thank you for potting with me. We've been through four seasons now. And next week, we're going to be talking about this season overall, you know, we're going to be talking about our favorite moments, maybe favorite characters. We have probably have a lot of categories we can come up with. Uh, but I also just like approaching the idea of this season as a whole. We'll have plenty to talk about. And hopefully, if you're listening, you'll write in with some of your favorite thoughts. Go ahead and write us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. Let us know your favorite episode of this season, favorite moments, um, favorite new additions anything you'd like. And uh, if you'd like to record a voice message for us, we'll play that on the podcast. But for now, Charles, I'll see you next week. All right. I'll see you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Cameron for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoverexposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.